he believed that memory was a distillation of uh, platonic forms that or maybe uh, so that by practicing the memory you were able to ascend higher your soul was able to reach higher and perhaps contact the forms and through them have some sort of concept of you know the one or the prime mover or something of that nature you're listening to talks from the apostolic joanite church everybody. My name is Eric Arneson, and I'm a filthy pagan. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I guess I know, uh, I know Scott through uh, Freemasonry, and I've, give, I've been studying the art of memory for a long time, primarily because of its ties to Freemasonry, and this is my talk on the art of memory. Is that good, Scott? That, okay, groovy. All right. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the art of memory and what it is. Um, we're going to look at how memory and learning uh, worked according to Renaissance neoplatonists. Uh, we're going to look at how fantasy and imagination work. I might disagree with Joe a little bit uh, in the course of this, which is great, right? That's what we're supposed to disagree amiably. Um, and then we're going to talk about how uh, memory and uh, how memory ties into sort of like modern magical practice and esoteric work, occult stuff. Hmm, I wonder how this works. <laughs> uh, Do you need a clicker? No, no, I have a clicker. I just oh. haven't done this in a little while, and I forgot uh, which button does what. I'm sure it'll all make sense in a second. Is there like a page down? Oh, there we go. It'll, it'll happen eventually. There we go. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right, we skipped a slide, but that's cool. We're going to uh, pretend that up there is a picture of Simonides of Chaos, who is one of the nine lyric poets of classical Greece. And uh, I guess most of the stories we have about him are where he, like, miraculously escaped death. Um, and his most famous escape from death was uh, the time he invented the art of memory. It was a side effect. He didn't, like, save his own life by memorizing stuff. But he was hired by this um, this mean old tyrant named Scopus. And, uh, the, well, he wasn't really a tyrant, I guess, but he, was a, uh, he wasn't a very nice guy. And he hired Simonides to come to, his, uh, come to a feast and write a poem, a big epic poem about him. And so Simonides went to the feast, gave this big epic poem, but he spent the first part of the poem praising Castor and Pollux, the, uh, the twin gods, the sons of Zeus, um, so when he was over, Scopus, who was super grumpy that day, was like, uh, here's half of your fee. Since you spent so much time talking about Castor and Pollux, you can collect the other half of your fee from them. So Simonides was like, crap, poets have been underpaid, I guess, forever. <laughs> and um, so he was kind of sulking, and a uh, servant came in and told Simonides that there were two young men waiting at the gates of the palace that had an important message for him, and he had to come right away. So Simonides is like, oh, I better go see. So he leaves, goes to the front gates, and the minute he leaves the palace, it collapses behind him and kills everybody inside. And the rubbish, the, the, the wreckage was so horrible that the bodies couldn't be identified, and Simonides discovered that by uh, exploring 
the image that he had of the banquet hall in his head, he was able to identify people based specifically on their location in, in the uh, banquet hall. So, uh, and thus the art of memory was invented. Um, so memory, like, memory as a technology has been at war with all of our other forms of um, story and communication, uh, beginning apparently with some stories in ancient Egypt, where <coughs> Thoth invent, invents writing, and he comes to the king of the god, or he comes to Ammon, and he's like, he's like, check out this amazing thing I've created, writing. With it, you can communicate at a distance. With it, you can write down your thoughts, and somebody in an entirely different place can learn what you have to say. And Ammon is like, this is cool, but if people write stuff down, they're going to stop using their memory. Um, and this will create forgetfulness in the soul. So uh, Ammon wasn't super happy, but writing, once it got out, it really caught on big. Um, I'm sure you guys have all heard of it. Some of us I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, so, the, uh, and writing, you know, I mean, writing is also tied very closely to magic, and it was seen sort of a, as a form of magic. A lot of gods of writing were also gods of magic. Uh, Thoth being a good one. Hermes, um, Odin is, you know, famous for doing magic writing stuff. Uh, so. But the the but but Ammon uh, saying that people using writing instead of their memory damaging their soul is kind of interesting. Like why? What what was the tie there? And this is because Plato had a very odd concept of how learning and memory worked. Uh, we didn't know, or we didn't have any idea of memories being stored physically in the body. For instance, we had uh, Plato believed in this concept called anamnesis which was the soul remembering. Knowledge and learning were not uh, acts of creation because man couldn't create, only the gods could do that. All knowledge pre-exists. Um, Plato taught that our souls, or he may have taught this, I don't know, he's hard to understand sometimes, but if your soul is immortal, every time it incarnates, it loses access to all of its knowledge. The process of being born into the physical world is so painful that the soul loses contact with its infinite knowledge. Uh, learning, anamnesis, is the process of your soul slowly gaining access to divine knowledge that it has already had. No knowledge is created. No new information is being created. It's just being accessed. So um, memory was seen as a very important part of this. If you're not using your memory to remember things, if you're not using memory to build up your soul and to reconnect with the divine, you are letting your soul die by writing things down instead of keeping them in your head. Uh, said Ammon. Um, so, uh, yeah. Me oh, yeah, then I've got that great Plotinus quote there. Memory and sensation are not passivity, but power. Um, uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Totally figuring this out. The memory palace. Okay, so you guys have probably heard of memory palaces before, but just briefly, um, our brains are really good at uh, remembering things in terms of location. Like, you know, you, you can remember how to get to your friend's house, you can remember how to get to the grocery store, like all of these things that are spatial are very, very easy for the mind to store. And so the memory palace is a sort of trick where you create or memorize a space in your mind, and then using that, 
uh, with striking images are able to encode um, large amounts of information and remember them in order. Uh, this, was, this was an incredibly common technique that was taught to everybody all the time, uh, all the way up through probably the uh, 15th century, maybe, in, maybe into the 16th as well. And it was so common that it was written about quite a bit. Cicero wrote about memory and said that it was part of the virtue of prudence, along with intelligence and foresight. Uh, Adherenium related memory to invention. And, and it was considered to be an essential element of rhetoric in the, uh, in the classical um, quadrivium. Trivium. In the classical trivium, it was considered to be an essential part of rhetoric. Without memory, you could not uh, say words, speak. And even Augustine um, was well-trained in the art of memory, and he wrote about it in his Confessions. He, uh, I'm going to read a couple passages here. The first one, I come to the fields and spacious palaces of memory, where are the treasures of innumerable images, brought into it from all things of all sorts perceived by the senses. I will pass beyond memory also, and where shall I find thee, thou truly good and certain sweetness? And where shall I find thee? If I find thee without my memory, then I do not retain thee in my memory, and how shall I find thee if I remember thee not? He, um, in that passage, he equates his entire relationship with God to memory and says that memory is divine because it is the way that he is able to perceive and interact with God. So memory was important. Uh, in fact, lots of people that you guys have heard of wrote about memory, including uh, Albertus Magnus. I think I've got an Albert, Albertus Magnus quote later on. Um, okay, so next, a uh, bad thing happened. I mean, it was good for civilization, but it was bad for the art of memory, and that was movable type, which was great, right? Like the printing press, all that great stuff. Uh, once paper became available in Europe, movable type was invented shortly after, and uh, printing exploded across Europe. It was incredible how fast um, printing caught on. 20 million books were in print by 1500, and by 1600, over 200 million. Um, literacy exploded. Like, we have this concept that people in the past were illiterate, but they were not. Like, books became very common. Uh, this dude, uh, Aldous Minutius, just uh, invented the first sort of uh, cheap book, which was the Octavo, which um, any middle-class family could get by spending just like a week's worth of wages, you know, no big deal. But it was affordable, like books were cheap all of a sudden, and everybody got them. Uh, but we can see that along with this happening, the practice of the art of memory fell into obscurity, and it stopped being taught, and it stopped being considered uh, really important. Uh, paper was also cheap, too, so anybody could have paper. Before this, Paper was rare, or people were writing on, like, parchment and vellum, which are made out of animals, and it's expensive to uh, kill an animal to make a grocery list. So, um, so this was a huge change. Uh, so Minutius was cool. Um, we're going to talk... I'm going to have to jump around in time a little bit because of how this happened. But he sh set up a printing shop in 1495, um, he printed Aristotle, Plutarch, and Plato, which had recently been reintroduced to Europe. Um, he printed the Hypnorotomachia Polyphili, which is a gorgeous book that I'm not going to talk a whole lot about, but you guys should look up. It's very fun. And he, he founded a, um, 
an academy. He called it the New Academy in 1502 to study Greek texts. Um, so all of this new knowledge was pouring in through books. You know, books were bringing all of these classical philosophers to people who had not had access to them before. But, uh, but this new technology killed or helped to kill the art of memory. But not entirely, because one of the books or collections of books that was brought back from, that, that had been reintroduced to Europe during this uh, period of time, was the Corpus Hermeticum, or the collection of uh, Hermetic um, tracts. And the first book of the Corpus Hermeticum, the Poimandris, starts off with this strange idea. Um, so if, when you read this, nous is an uh, old Greek word that might mean something like mind. It's something akin to mind. There was this concept right at the beginning of Corpus Hermeticum where uh, Hermes Trismegistus, who's the, the sort of like writer of these texts, um, falls into a trance, encounters the mind of God, and the mind of God tells him, if you hold in your head anything you want to know, I will teach it to you. Um, tying this in with the concept of anamnesis, uh, it, this like fit really, really well into the whole idea of the Renaissance man. Like the, It was believed that one person could ha- hold all knowledge in their head, uh, which was important because by holding all knowledge in your head through anamnesis, your soul was suddenly fully reconnected with all the knowledge that was available to it which would be super cool. Um, so this book, these books, the Corpus Hermeticum, were translated by Marsilio Ficino, who kind of brought Neoplatonism back from the dead um, by introducing uh, Europe to Plato, Plotinus, Porphyry, Iamblichus, uh, the concept of platonic love and Eros as a spiritual force, uh, it talked about he talked about the immortality, the soul, transmigration, and um, other really great stuff like that. Uh, and the I believe the Corpus Hermeticum was published in the 1470s for the first time in Europe. Um, but the divine attributes of the mind. So the, this concept of the Renaissance man and the and the not and being able to hold all knowledge. It's called Pan Sophia. which uh, I guess the next slide is about. I jumped, jumped ahead again. This is another, another cool Italian dude, uh, Giulio Camillo, who, um, who apparently was incredibly antisocial and didn't enjoy going out in public, but came up with this uh, system of the art of memory called the theater of memory or the theater of the world, uh, in which he had... You can't see it very carefully, but it's a... It's a set of cataloging all available knowledge. And you can kind of make out down at the bottom, there's planetary symbols, and then I can't remember what the different steps are, what the different levels are, but the the concept was that in your mind, you could create this um, this theater. It was an imaginal theater. And in this imaginal theater, you uh, you could use it as a filing cabinet for every single piece of knowledge you ever came across until at some point your theater contained all possible knowledge that was available. Uh, and it's thought that he probably built one of these. The theory, the thought is that he built a theater that was maybe like big enough for you to just stick your head in and kind of look around or something like that, which I think is pretty cool. None of it survived. It's just we have, we have some concepts. Um, 
but this, so, so Renaissance thought, they didn't think the same way we did. Renaissance thought was phantasmic. It, uh, it was mainly based around images and, and what they called fantasy. And, um, and, and these were seen as uh, kind of maybe almost like attached or closer to platonic forms or some sort of like higher realm of information that you were, you were accessing through your own mind. Uh, people were said to have a kind of, uh, we were said to have a, um, what was it called? A phantasmic apparatus, which was a, a connection somewhere deep inside us where your physical body connected to the soul. Now, the soul didn't speak Latin or English or Italian or German or anything like that. The soul only spoke through images. So what would happen is, like, words would enter you. Your lower part would be responsible for transforming those words into images. Those images would get shoved through the phantasmal apparatus to communicate with your greater soul, and then the information would come back in reverse, come down as images. The images would be transformed into words, and then you could speak. Um... And so, basically, there's this concept that creation of images, creation of images in the mind, was the equivalent of creating real things in the world, because the mind was perhaps more real than the world was. Uh, and, then, and then we just continued to have good ideas. Um, the Protestant Reformation in 1517... Was, was awesome for a lot of reasons and also did some bad stuff to, to us too. Um, because it turns out that books weren't the only thing killing the art of memory. Uh, phantasms or images in the mind were seen as idols. Um, to, Luther wrote about it. You can, you can search through Luther's writings. He wrote a lot. And uh, the places where he talks about people using their imagination, he's like, this is bad. We can't have people imagining images because when they're doing that, it's idolatry. If you imagine pictures of Jesus or imagine pictures of the saints, this is, a, this is an idol that you've created in your mind because, you know, images in the mind were just as important as images in the world. So this happened a lot. Um, you know, there was uh, like Amsterdam, I think, had a big uh, bout of this, but Protestants, new Protestants would go through Catholic um, churches and destroy artwork. They, they destroyed uh, images, they destroyed paintings, they destroyed statues, uh, and this new concept of these like really stark Protestant churches with no images of them became kind of the norm. Um, one of the main goals of the Reformation was to root out the cult of idols, which was, which was a huge part of Catholic tradition in Europe. So uh, the Counter-Reformation happened, which you, which you would think might be able to save the um, cult of idols, or at least the popular, and you know the popular use of the imagination and fantasy, but instead the Counter Reformation also cracked down on all sorts of creative religious uh, imagery and art, including sacred music, uh, religious art, no matter how explicit or tame, uh, and iconography. Ion uh, Culiano, who was a Romanian um, historian. Uh, said that it calls this a total censorship of the imagination. Um, this was a death knell for the art of memory. The art of memory w relied so heavily on use of the imagination, and not only use of the imagination, but like trust in the imagination, similar to what Joe was talking about in his talk, where you know, it, imagination used to be a trusted form of thought. Uh, now we treat it as a child's plaything. 
um, and we dismiss it. We dismiss it as meaningless and not of any importance. Um, <clears throat> and now, the way, uh, and it's interesting, uh, there's this concept now, apparently a disorder that some people called, have called aphantasia, which um, people with, with aphantasia can't form images in their mind. I don't know. I don't know if it's real or if it's just because people don't, aren't encouraged when they're children and so they never learn how to do it or what. But. It is very much a real thing. It yeah? Is, uh, it is an attested neurological condition. Wow. Um, all right. So, so the art of memory uh, dropped out of popular use. It wasn't taught in schools anymore. Uh, no longer would you have the um, hordes of eager uh, rhetorical students uh, going through palaces and temples and, and creating their memory palaces. Um, but the Renaissance had a lot of awesome, crazy occult characters. And these guys latched onto the art of memory and began to use it as a magical practice. My favorite is Giordano Bruno. Um, he was a Dominican monk. He lived from 1548 to 1600 when he was burned at the stake. Um, he was a Dominican monk who was kicked out of the order for studying forbidden texts. I think the one that really got him kicked out was uh, Erasmus, who was a sort of counter-Reformation apologist, but the Dominicans didn't really like him very much. Um, he, was, he, he was a genius, uh, and his stuff can be a little tough to understand, and there's a lot of subtlety and sarcasm in it, so it, he's, he's a little difficult to study sometimes. Um, and he's also been badly understood for a long time because his approach, though subtle, is mostly wrapped entirely in the terminology of uh, mnemotechnics or memory technology and magic. He had this interesting philosophical religion that he kind of created himself that was a mis mixture of Neoplatonism mixed with his own brand of uh, Hermeticism from the Corpus Hermeticum and such. And he, um, he had a great, he was a memory wizard. Like he apparently, I don't mean that in the sense of, well, I guess, he was incredible at memorizing stuff. He could memorize anything, right? You could give him a book, he'd read it, and he'd be like, oh, I'm ready to argue about this book. Um, he traveled all over Europe, mostly because he kept getting in trouble. He was super bad at keeping his mouth shut and super bad at, like, not calling people dumb and stuff. So he really... Uh, didn't get along with people uh, well. Although he did have a really good core of followers. I say this all explains why he's a, 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 a saint in the AJC. He's a what? He's a saint in, in, our, in our canon of saints. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. Uh, probably because he has trouble... Uh, Getting along? Yeah. <laughs> um, he... Uh, I've got a Bruno quote here. Oh, yeah. He said that from ideas come the formation of the soul, which ties back to that idea, that, to the concept of pansophia and to anamnesis. And he wrote that ideas are not, are not only part of the living life and developing reason. Illumination, life bringing, life bringing, and unification, conforming to superior agencies, these are the methods by which one develops intelligence and memory of the forms. Um... So his, uh, his ideas about anamnesis, he was convinced that, at least I think he was, like I said, he's difficult to interpret sometimes, but my impression is that he believed that 
memory was a distillation of uh, platonic forms that, or maybe uh, so that by practicing the memory, you were able to ascend higher. Your soul was able to reach higher and perhaps contact the forms and through them have some sort of concept of you know the one or the prime mover or something of that nature. Um, so he wrote, he's, and uh, actually a lot of Bruno, or Bruno, more and more Bruno stuff is starting to be available in English, so you can, you can go find some of this on Amazon now. Um, and then he also, I, I love this little quote, And thou, Namazni, mine, who art hidden beneath the thirty seals and immured within the dark prison of the shadow of ideas, let me hear thy voice sounding in my ear. Um, Namazni was the Greek goddess of memory. All right, so we're going to look a little bit at how Bruno taught the art of memory because he did it, it was his profession. He would go around and teach people to use the art of memory. Uh, he didn't make a very good living at it because nobody paid attention to the art of memory anymore. But, um, and he also had his own rules and words for things which didn't always agree with everybody else. So in the art of memory, I guess a, a good rundown would be like, if we we're going to use this room for the art of memory, uh, you know, right away I can, there's like a number of good locations to store a memory image. Probably in the chair closet, maybe sitting at the piano, maybe um, in that back corner next to that door with a vent in it. Maybe Constance's door would be a really good spot. And then this great door over here. So if you were to turn this room into a memory palace, you would go around and spend time looking at all of these places until these locations, these loci, or subjects, as Bruno called them, would be fixed in your mind, very firmly fixed in your mind. Um, Bruno said they, your locations should not be too similar, so we've got a good variety, even though there's like two doors, one of them has a vent, and one of them says chair closet. Uh, they should be spacious and varied. They're, they're, they're big, but they're, you know, spread around the room. Um... Bruno said that your subjects and adjects, which are images, should be... Re Oops, I'm reading for the next slide. Never mind, let's forget that part for right now. Um, you should be emphasizing speed and confidence and recall. So if, you're, if your memory palace is going to be useful, you need to be able to walk through it quickly. So it takes work. And he actually writes in his book, he's like, if you, you know, before you start memorizing things, work purely on your memory palace. And I, he, he says something like, in the space of one full moon, so from like one full moon to the next, you should have a good solid memory palace if you practice every day. And then you're ready to start putting stuff in it. And the stuff is adjects or images. Um, images are to be, so these, and the, so once you have the structure, then you're ready to start using your memory to remember stuff. And uh, uh, images should be striking and dramatic, and they should move, right? They aren't static pictures, but they are things with motion, which is also a very hermetic concept tied back to a passage in the Asclepius, possibly in the Asclepius, I don't remember. There's a part in the Corpus Medicum or the Asclepius where it says that everything that moves has a soul. So if your individual memories move, they are somehow ensouled. You have somehow drawn soul into them. Um, your subjects and adjects should be related, so if we were, so uh, I, I don't usually do that because it makes, seems to make them less striking, but Bruno said that like, if you're remembering stuff in Tabor space, then your images should be somehow related to Tabor space or maybe Portland, I don't know. Um, 
<clears throat> and then he had all these great discretion, determination, and ordination. That means that they should be uh, discreet or easily easy to tell apart. Uh, they should be um, definite. You should have like a clear image of them, and they should be ordination. Like he would, he would frequently keep things in particular orders. So I don't know if you were. Remembering stuff related to a church, you wouldn't put a, a pope before a priest. You'd have the pope be at the end and the priest be at the beginning or something. I don't know. Uh, I sh- I, and Oh, yeah. And so there's a lot of memory stuff, especially if you go back to the classic um, teachers, uh, like the pre, pre-Christian teachers. They would, um, you, you are almost always encouraged to do things that would make an emotional impact. And so a lot of the really classical memory images were sometimes pornographic in nature. Um, and Bruno emphasized, he said, there are no room, there's no room for the phantasms of a degenerate imagination. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, and here's my Albertus Magnus quote. This is, when, uh, this is from his commentary on Aristotle. Memory, however, as we stated just before, even that which is of objects capable of being grasped by the intellect does not take place without a mental image. All right. So, uh, so my practice, or what I have discovered, is that memory is the key to ritual, whether this be fraternal or religious or magical. Ritual summoned from the memory, ritual that comes out of the memory, is far more impactful and far more uh, influential. Memory, or ritual encoded using the art of memory, using, for instance, the set of symbols and images that goes along with the tradition that you're working with, is even better. So uh, I know that there are masons in the room. I know that you know you got the, the church probably has its own set of symbols. You should definitely experiment with this and, and see. I, I would. It's it's easy to learn, and you can totally do it and be amazed. Um, it also helps uh, visualization. You know, the the practice of visualization or directed imagination is uh, is key to good memory, and and feel free. I would encourage you to use words like imagination and fantasy, so that we can reclaim those words from the uh, from the dustbin of the Counter Reformation. Uh, the example over here, the 231 gates, I was really excited when, um, I think Scott had it in his slides, but he's gone now. Uh, this is a, uh, a visualization practice out of the Sefer Yetzera, which is a, uh, the Kabbalistic text, or the pre-Kabbalistic text, I suppose. Uh, and it's very complicated, but it says in the, in the Sefer Yetzera, there's a passage, I think it's uh, like book two, chapter three, or however you split that up where it says something about, like, form the images of the alphabet in your mind, carve them out of stone, and raise them up, and form gates between all of them. That's not an exact quote, but it's something very similar to that. Uh, it's a practice called the... Oh, I guess the, the quote is right there. You guys can read it. 2-4. That was close. Okay. So, um, and that it's a practice called the 231 gates. All right, so... If you guys want to learn the art of memory, it's pretty easy to get started thanks to the efforts of John Michael Greer, who has this great article you can find online called The Memory Garden. Um, 
that's an image of the gar that's a the, a plan of the garden but it's basically you start in the middle at circle number 1 and you just you you go on a walk through this imaginary garden and the imaginary garden like you have to you can follow his uh his steps all of the gazebos are colored and themed according to i believe uh passages out of Agrippa um tied to numbers and planets and all this stuff it's it's a it's a really fun exercise if you practice this for a little while, you have a nice 10-location memory garden that you can use to memorize stuff. Um, you can use... So you, a lot of uh, classical teachers tell you not to use imaginary spaces, that your actual memory palace should be a remembered real location. Uh, you're going to have to play with it and see which works for you. I find, I find that both work. I find that you run out of uh, real locations quickly and then you have to like you know make imaginary locations to like tie them together or you know s stuff like that um also our architecture the modern architecture is extremely boring and extremely plain and it's very difficult to find enough variety so you might have to like search out old churches which of course we don't have a whole lot of uh or, or things like that. You might so that's that can make things tough. But you can also use familiar spaces such as your living room. Um, there are some great tutorials I've seen online where uh, there are, there are memory champions now. The art of memory has sort of made a little bit of a comeback, and now there's like world champ, world memory championship stuff. Um, and there's this great tutorial where one of the world champions uh, he he's like I, I use my apartment as a memory palace I'm going to take you on a tour of my apartment and I'm going to teach you the art of memory and you just, he walks you through and sure enough you memorize his grocery list right there with him it's it's pretty amazing it works fast um, so yeah there's a lot of and there's also like as, as far as the mystical stuff goes like Bruno had this concept of of universal love, or or this this is a little bit before gravity. He he uh, he actually, in some point, is like, love is why the planets orbit the sun, because they all love the sun. But love is repulsive as well as attractive, which is why that they don't all go crashing into the sun. He was a heliocentrist uh, before it was cool, and um, that heliocentrism led to, or or was either strongly influenced by or led to his. Um, heretical uh, religion that he made up, which involved uh, some sort of sun worship and was possibly the reason he got burned at the stake. Um, yeah, so Bruno's, or so Greer's Memory Garden, that's a really good one. And now we're going to, okay, we're going to do a little bit more Bruno because now we have the memory wheel. This is not actually the full wheel. His wheel is very, very complicated. This is a way of making images, and I will explain how it works. We can do it together. Um, you create an alphabet. Uh, Bruno uses the Latin alphabet, and then he uh, sticks in Greek letters and Hebrew letters for uh, noises that the Latin alphabet doesn't include. Um, for each one of, for each letter, you have a sentence or a phrase that you memorize. So for English, it, you know, you, you come up with 26 of them. And, um, and each one of these will have uh, an actor, an action, and an object that he's acting on uh, for a, for a three-spoke wheel. Uh, and this is called a person-action-object system. Um, Bruno's, Bruno's system is five layers deep which gives him 24,300,000 combinations. 
but a three layer deep one will still give you what 17,700 you guys want to check my math on that <laughs> um, uh, so, so an example, like if we wanted to uh, memorize the word cab, if we wanted, you know, if we were, had a cab in our memory palace, that uh, you would need the three letters C, A, and B. So this is so this is going to be easy. We just need the first three letters of the alphabet. For A, we could use Aries throwing a spear. For B, we could use uh, Bellerophon taming the Pegasus. And then for C, you could use um, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, right? So you've got three classical dudes all doing the thing that they're classically associated with. Uh, and anything that, 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 start, that has a letter A in it is going to be associated with Aries. So if you have the word cab, you go down to C, which is Caesar for the first letter. And then A, you're going to use Aries' action, which is throwing. And then for B, you're going to use Bellerophon's object, which is the Pegasus. So the word cab would be Caesar throwing the Pegasus. Does that make sense? Kind of? <laughs> and it's hilarious, right? Like, it's a ridiculous image. So it sticks in your mind because it doesn't make any sense. But when you're looking at it, you're like, oh, right, throwing. That's A for, for Aries, what, what Aries is doing. Um, all right, so that's the memory wheel. That's how you make Im That's one way to make images. You don't have to do it that way. All right, so... I talked a little bit about how the printing press and then Martin Luther destroyed the art of memory by, uh, first, first of all, replacing the technology, and then second of all, uh, saying that it was just super bad for your eternal soul and that you would probably go to hell if you memorized stuff with images. Um, but images didn't really go away. We still have them. They kind of faded into the background. People kind of forgot about the power that they have. But we do have that power still. Like, it is still very, very present in our society. Uh, and I'm going to show you a bunch of images. Um, we saw some, you know, like, you remember when we were looking at the chicken tarot cards and somebody right away is like, oh, is that KFC? Oh, is that McDonald's? Like, we have images in our society still that are being used to manipulate and control us and communicate information very quickly, but it's being done by uh, advertisers and propagandists and marketers and publicists and uh, mass media stuff um, instead of the church. But it's fascinating that it's still there. Culliano, um, who I mentioned earlier, uh, draws a, connect, a, a direct line between the magical practice of images and modern advertising. And he says that modern advertising is pretty much the, the you know, the grandbaby of Renaissance magic, uh, which is kind of, I think, a fascinating concept and terrifying. Um, oh, he has a quote. Nowadays, the magician busies himself with public relations, propaganda, market research, sociological surveys, publicity, information, counter-information, misinformation, censorship, espionage, and even cryptography. All right, that's, um, that's my talk. Did I go fast? That was fast. <laughs> All right. Uh, do you guys have any questions? Yes. I have two questions. Okay. Um, now, I was struck by the quote that you put in the space of one moon. Yes. Yes. Is this, did give him some of his magic 
Yes. Is this possibly a Luna victory, given the fact that Luna has a correlation with the sun complex? Luna, the, that planet would also be where the memory was seen to reside. Yes. So yes, absolutely. And there's some question about how much like image magic itself that Bruno practiced because of his, you know, he's got these catalogs of images, of ways of creating images. Um, but we also know that he had access, that he had read, for instance, uh, Picatrix and um, that other dude that Agrippa loved so much. Arabic guy who made all the planetary images. Uh, anyhow, so we know that he had this concept of like you know uh, electional astrology and proper timing of planets and image creation, and it was seen that images uh, impressed on the mind were just as powerful as images impressed on physical objects. And uh, so we don't, which would mean that it's dangerous. So some of Bruno's images would have therefore been dangerous for him to create at the wrong time if he had this belief because so many of them involve like sacred objects and gods and symbolism um, which is interesting so it, it does, I do think that there was a system of memory magic built into Bruno's stuff that he just wasn't writing down um, and along those lines would a hypothetically possible Absolutely. In fact, we have documentary evidence that Freemasonry, especially the what we call speculative masonry, probably started out as the practice of the art of memory. Uh, all Masons should be doing it. All Freemasons should be doing the art of memory. Yes. Can you say that a little louder? Sure. The gift of, the gift of the Holy Spirit being one being memory, how would that tie into something along this line as well? I'm not totally certain that I'd be uh, qualified to talk about that, but I think that um, the way that Augustine described his uh, his connection to God being through memory is a really good one, and you should uh, you can find that in his um, Confessions. So there's a pretty long passage where he goes back and forth talking about, you know, the gardens and palaces of his memory, along with how his memory of God is the only way that he's able to, you know, without remembering God, how does he know that God exists, right? I hope that, I know I, know I don't have a good answer for you, but I, you, you've at least got a breadcrumb to follow. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, thank you very much. Thank you.